There's a kind of fiction that we all subscribe to that journalists and broadcasters in particular don't have any personal views. And of course, we all do. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Good afternoon. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the magazine that sponsors this show. And every single week we bring you a new guest right here on the profile. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Edward Sturton. Edward is a broadcaster and journalist with a career spanning 40 years. In that time, he's worked on factual programs across BBC, radio and television, often specialising in religious affairs. He's the author of a number of books, and his latest is Sunday, a history of religious affairs through 50 years of conversations and controversies. It's a look back through the archives of Sunday, a programme broadcast on BBC Radio 4. Edward, welcome to the show. Very kind of you to have me, and thank you for that very generous introduction. It always makes me feel very ancient when I <laughs> being reminded <laughs> that I've been doing this stuff for 40 years. Yes, indeed, you have experience, an experienced journalist. I think I always think experience sounds better than veteran because I think that does then make people sound old, doesn't no, it? No, you're right. And experience, I think, is incredibly important. Um, you sort of hope you have learned something in all that time of being on the air, learned a few lessons. Um, Absolutely. Still, still made lots of mistakes, but I hope, but I hope we've learned a few things. Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to hearing some of those stories, but we want to go right back to the beginning to start mm -hmm. off with. Can you tell me a little bit about what your memories are of childhood growing up? Well, I had a very um, unusual childhood, really. I was born in Nigeria. Um, my family moved all over the place. We were in Malta. Um, we spent many years in Switzerland. Uh, and then during my teenage years, I was at boarding school in England, but I got we, we lived in uh, in Ghana in West Africa. Uh, which was just an incredibly privileged um, way to grow up, partly because they're fun places and interesting places, but also because it gave you a kind of um, sense of, of the wider world. Uh, and coming back to England was supposed to be coming home, but it didn't really feel like it. You know, home was home was everywhere. Um, and in fact, you know, somewhere like Switzerland, lots of people from this country would go there for their holidays. So um, we, we, we were really very lucky uh, in that way. And I understand you were educated at a Roman Catholic school. So how important was, was faith for your parents and, and for you growing up? Well, um, my uh, father is, well, sorry, was, I mean, he's, he died a couple of years ago, um, a serious Catholic, a traditional Catholic. Um, my mum is still alive, is, is, is an Anglican. Um, and it was, I suppose, when I was really becoming conscious of religion, it was in the years after the Second Vatican Council, which, as you remember, was that great kind of reforming meeting in Rome in the 1960s. So there was lots of chat about things like the Latin Mass, which um, was restricted at that time. And people like my father took a rather dim view of that. Um, but it was certainly, in traditional terms, uh, a very um, observant Catholic childhood. You know, we went to church every Sunday. Um, we observed family fast days and holidays and obligation and so forth. Um, and the education I had, which was first at a Catholic preparatory school in Sussex, and then at Amberforth, the uh, monastic school in North Yorkshire, obviously built very much on that. 
Um, and in a funny sort of way, I mean, this is it's a very strange thing to say this now or to reflect on this now, but uh, my family were Catholic during the Reformation and remained Catholic despite uh, Henry VIII and, you know, Elizabeth and all that. And weirdly, I think that still cast rather a shadow over religion when I was a child. So, for example, at my prep school, um, all the dormitories were named after people who died hideous deaths at the hands of the English state. You know, people like Thomas More, who was um, who, who was executed at the Tower, or Edmund Campion, a Jesuit who sneaked into Britain and uh, during the years when when Catholicism was prohibited, and he was hanged, drawn, and quartered in this grisly way. So it's a very odd way of you know you grow up with these um, martyrs of an earlier time, very much held up as examples of fidelity and courage. Uh, and it gives you a slightly old sort of feeling about being British in a funny sort of way, because obviously it's a prep school and you're very brought up as a Brit. Um, but at the same time, you have these examples of um, people who were very much at odds with with England as it as it then as it then was. And and I think that was I don't think my my children had that at all, um, but uh, my generation very much did. Yeah, and. Looking back at that childhood, that upbringing, was there a moment where, or a series of moments where you felt like your faith was becoming your own and it was more than just your parents, but it, it had greater meaning, I suppose, for yourself? Because I know a lot of a lot of people I speak to, certainly as teenagers, will often kind of walk away from the faith they've been brought up in completely. You know, what was your experience? How did how did you realise that, that Catholicism was not just something your parents did, but it was actually something meaningful and special for you? I think if you grow up, uh, in a Catholic community like Ampleforth, um, it kind of seeps into your being. There was remarkably little rebellion, which is odd if you think that this was the 1970s uh, during that period. Um, it was, I mean, the, the monks, I mean, it's awful to reflect on some of the stuff that's come out about Ampleforth since then, but at the time, I think we rather respected and liked the monks. They'd made this huge sacrifice um, to serve God, uh, they were intelligent. It was a very liberal environment. Uh, and I think it wasn't really until I left and went to university that I sort of became conscious of the, the whole world wasn't like this. And for quite a lot of people, um, being being Catholic was weird. And actually, monks were even weirder. Um, so I don't think I would say there was a moment at which I consciously made a choice like that. I think it was just became part of who I who I was, and I think it's remained like that ever since. Um, it, it, it's not, it's just there, if you like. And I don't mm -hmm. think, and, and I never felt any particular, I mean, of course, I, you know, like everybody, I've had ups and downs in the de my degree of my faith and the degree to which I observe it. And certainly when I went to university, I wasn't quite so good about going to mass. And even and quite often now I fail. But, but I don't think I ever thought of a sort of decisive moment in which I had to choose really. It's just kind of there and it's always been there. Is there a sense then that actually the faith of your childhood and the faith of today are actually quite similar? Um, well, not, well, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. Yes and no is the answer to that. Um, yes, in the sense that it's kind of there as a constant thing, but I think one's understanding of it, uh, I hope, has changed and deepened over the years. 
um, partly actually because of, of my work. I mean, I've, I've traveled a lot in the course of my work. And in the late 1990s, I did a BBC Two series um, on the Catholic Church across the world. And we, we amazing sort of budget in those days. I don't know you'd get that now, but we traveled everywhere, Latin America, India, Africa, Rome, obviously, the United States, various countries in Europe. And what I came to realize is that Catholicism is something much bigger than the rather, sometimes rather narrow way we see it in Europe and in Britain in particular. It's not, it's not just about sex, which is sometimes, you know, you sometimes feel it is listening to the Europe, European church. It's about issues that are really pressing in those wider parts of the world, poverty, social justice, education, um, all those things are, are much higher up the agenda. And that's very, I found that very kind of revitalizing and, and, and made me realize that there was more to my, to my faith than I, than I thought previously. So I hope, I hope it's a slightly um, more sophisticated, more thoughtful, thing than it was when when i was a child but you're right yes. it's a kind of basic assumption that there it is and you know i'm, I'm comfortable yeah. with it. It, it it's the same it's really interesting what you just said there about this kind of assumption that the catholic church or christians in general are obsessed with sex because i've heard that accusation leveled at the church i've also heard it leveled at the media that actually this isn't that christians are obsessed with it it's that journalists want to keep asking about it i mean you straddle those two worlds as a journalist and as a catholic where does the truth lie um, I, I have to say, I don't think my journalism has focused very much on sex. Um, you well, know, I'll give you, I'll of... give you an example. I'll give you an okay. example. The Church of England right. Synod, the Church of England Synod has met and they've discussed 101 different issues, and all of the headlines will be about what the Church of England thinks about same-sex relationships. But isn't that because they have been? Uh, and, and, um, and I, you know, doing this book, I certainly noticed that they have been obsessing about that subject for generations. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that that's driven our, our, our concern to cover it in in that way, uh, because the church itself is so divided about it, has been so focused on it. Same with with um, ordination of women. Um, you know, it, it, you 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 you're probably going to say to me that that means we ignore um, uncontroversial good things that the church does. And I think uh, there's an element of truth in that, of course. But, you know, well, for example, we're talking just after the dreadful events in uh, in Israel and preparing for next week's programme, we are looking for either Anglican or Catholic Palestinian Christians to talk to, you know, voices you haven't yet heard. Um, and that, you know, that's, a, that's a, a, an entirely positive way of affecting the church's mission so um I, I, I wouldn't apologize for the amount of attention we've given to things like the church's position on same-sex relationship because i think we are faithfully reflecting the nature of the debate in the church um and I, and i and as i say, i don't think it's fair to say that we ignore we wholly ignore the church is more positive contributions um so so i think i think i'll defend my professional on on that front um, uh, yeah i mean you know it's the same with abuse you know i i got miserable for a while presenting the sunday program it's sort of the period at the end of the first um, decade of this millennium 
um, when every Sunday I would yep, turn up and um, and it would be another dreadful story of abuse, very often involving the Catholic Church, particularly the Church in Ireland. But goodness, we had to cover those stories. Of course we did. Incredibly important. However uncomfortable it may be. Let's go back to the beginning of your career. What made you want to pursue journalism as a profession? Um, I did a lot of it at university. I also did a certain amount of public speaking at university, which I enjoyed, and I realised I could do it with reasonable confidence. And I suppose I wanted to be engaged in big public issues, really. That was probably a bit of ego in there too, pleasure in <laughs> the sound of my own voice. Um, you know, the pleasure of being at, on, on telly as it was in my, my sort of first job. Um, and but, but I think it's really the privilege of being there when history is being made and also of being able to find stuff out. Um, it, it's just a, you know, and sorry, I'm being practically inarticulate um, in answer to this question, but also the process of continuing to learn. I mean, I very much enjoyed learning stuff at the school and university. And journalism gives you a chance to go on doing that. You know, I quite often find myself somewhere, um, particularly on foreign stories, thinking, goodness me, I'm being paid to do this. And I really enjoy it. I do it for free. When you're discovering a new culture or, or a whole new political system, or you're meeting some really in an unusual and articulate person. Um, it's a great job. You were talking there about the privilege it is of finding things out and working as a as a journalist and really uncovering the, the biggest issues of, of the day. Is it fair to say that religion is often at the heart of the biggest issues of the day, but perhaps that isn't always recognised to the extent that it, that it should be? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I think that something like the Sunday programme is such a wonderful institution because it's one of the few places that does give religion the serious treatment that it deserves. Um, and I think not only are we a very secular country, the media are very secular-minded too. And I think that blinds us to the religious dimension to stories very often. And it means we get them wrong. And actually, since we are talking after the, the dreadful events in Israel, it's worth reflecting on the rise of Hamas, which began as a religious movement as a, an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And I think unless you understand its religious roots and, and understand the way those uh, were transformed into essentially a military um, philosophy and, and what's behind all that, you, you, you just aren't going to understand um, what they're all about, which you need to, obviously. So yeah. I, th I, think we've, I think secular journalism very, very often misses um, that that dimension. It, and it's it's really interesting you raise that because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. As you say, we are recording shortly after the news from Israel where Hamas yeah. have gone in, infiltrated and, and killed hundreds of people. And, and actually the reports coming out of the region right now are, are so horrific. I, I can't yeah, even absolutely. give some of the details yeah. on air. Um, yeah, and I wanted to ask you about, about that, specifically about, about Hamas, because actually those of us who, who have an interest in religion it's not like it's a secret. It's that actually these groups are very open about their religious and theological motivations. 
But I think you're right. In a lot of the kind of secular media coverage, that is often glossed over. Uh, and there, there is a fundamental religious motivation to these groups. But it seems perhaps difficult for us sometimes in the West to to talk about that and to bring religion into the into the picture. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's because we just don't. We are such a secular society, um, and you know, it, it doesn't 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 fit with our world view. Um, uh, uh, whereas, in fact, we we are uh, we are the odd ones out in this small corner, this small secular corner of Northwest Europe. Uh, for most of the people on this planet, religion remains an enormously important, you know, um, motivating factor. Uh, but it, but it's a kind of it's a kind of failure of imagination, I think. Um, you know that that we 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 just we we don't understand it because it's it's not like us. It strikes me how things have changed because in the introduction to your book, you note the kind of really the Christian foundations of of the BBC. So, for example, mm. in the nineteen twenties, there was no broadcasting at all on Sunday mornings in order to observe the Sabbath. And the BBC handbook at the time said, "quote The BBC is doing the best of service to prevent any decay of Christianity in a nominally Christian country." Uh, uh, now, uh, reading that today, I I can think of many many Christians who would love that to still be the case for the for the bbc today to say we want to prevent the decay of christianity in this country but of course you and i know that is absolutely not how the bbc sees things and so actually there's been a huge amount of change well it has and and, and to be honest that it, it shouldn't be the bbc's job on that i don't think um Reith had an incredibly powerful influence on the genes of the institution and i think it's amazing how long that kind of basic idea that it was the BBC's job to promote Christianity went on. If you think that in the 1960s, um, the almost all the staff in the religion department were ordained clergymen in the Church of England, um, which is an astonishing fact, really, if you think back, isn't it? Uh, but but actually, the, the, the foundation of the Sunday programme was a decisive moment in all that, I think, uh, because that was the first time that religion had been treated as a legitimate object of journalistic inquiry, not just worship, not just the celebration of religion, but a um, a rigorous uh, judgment of religious institutions in 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 the way that journalists would make them about political institutions, in, in, almost. Um, in the early days of the program, uh, Anglicanism, the Church of England, remained very much its focus. But that, of course, has changed hugely too, as perhaps the, the place of the Church of England in the nation's life has diminished somewhat, and also as a religion of other kinds has become so important both in Britain, but also, as we were discussing earlier, around the world. So I, I think, I mean, Lord Reith, I think he died in the, years, the year that Sunday was established. Um, so he probably wouldn't have approved at, at all, but it is a very, very different world, and I and I think rightly so. I mean, you you the idea that we should proselytize um, a single religion in circumstances where um, the Church of England has become so much less of a force among the population as a whole, where our religious landscape has become so richly diverse. Um, where you know other religions have such a big sort of place in our society today, 
uh, it would just be wrong for us to go on um, doing as you say, <laughs> or doing as as John Reith said in that in that BBC handbook. Yes, um, you you mentioned we live in a increasingly um, secular world, secular society. How yeah. how do you how do you deal with the objection from a from an atheist who might look at you and say, "Well, Edward, you've had this incredible career. You you bring this journalistic uh, integrity and this inquiring mind, and you're a, you're a thinker. How can you personally believe in the what what a what an atheist disparagingly would call the kind of sky fairies and the you know that that kind of that kind of attitude that just sees religion as clearly made up nonsense. We we have no evidence for it. You know, how do you personally respond to that kind of a, an accusation? Well, I don't feel that personally I need to, is the answer to that. Um, there's a kind of fiction that we all subscribe to, that journalists and broadcasters in particular don't have any personal views. And of course, we all do. Um, we obviously can't say which political party we either, well, we can't allow to belong to them, but we, we might vote for, um, because that would lay us open to accusations of bias. And I think, although we, we can say what religion we are, there's, there's some of that sense of distance applies with religion too, in that what I want to be judged by is what I do on air, what I say and the questions I ask. And if somebody um, can look at a program I've done and said, we could tell that you were a Catholic from the way, you know, say you address the issue of abortion or the death penalty, then I would be failing in my job, and then I absolutely would have to answer that question. But touch wood, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and I think after a while, we, we talked about experience and so forth, after a while, the habit of uh, keeping your views to yourself and asking questions in a way that is neutral and impartial and doesn't betray a personal passion or a personal opinion, that just becomes rather like religion. Really. That becomes part of who you are. So uh, that would be my answer to your notional atheist who might put that question. You know, okay, only a fair enough question. If you can point to occasions when you've been sitting in the kitchen and you start throwing things at the radio because you think I'm asking Catholic questions. If I'm yes. not... If I'm asking the sort of questions that you want answered, then we're all fine. Uh, and I can well understand how professionally that's the answer. Professionally, once you are in front of that microphone, being a journalist, asking those those questions, your your personal beliefs don't come into it. You're there to do a job. But if you're not behind the microphone, if you just bump into someone in the pub, do those sorts of impartiality questions still run through you? Are you still reluctant to kind of give too much of a personal religious response because you're aware you represent the BBC or, or there's a bit more latitude I there? Think that, to be absolutely honest in answer to that question, I think that depends who you're talking to. Um, with friends, uh, it's no hell's barred. Um, and I, I don't know, should I say, I, I've got, yeah. I, 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 for example, I've got one or two politicians, friends, um, who date back to university days, and we will sit around in the pub or dinner or whatever it is, and the politicians will say things that certainly aren't uh, in line with their party views, and I will say things that I certainly could never say on the air, but that's because we trust each other. You know, friendship really matters. 
in that way. Um, but if I was in a group who I didn't know particularly well, I would be a bit careful. Yeah. Um, I mean, for example, when, when, when you, you know, when you do books, you quite often get invited to talk at literary festivals. Um, and I am a little bit wary. Uh, it's important to be as honest as you can. Otherwise, why on earth are you up there talking? Um, but I am a little bit careful about saying what I feel strongly about in those circumstances. So it really is a question of judging the forum, I think, that you're in. And and especially whether whether you trust the people that you're speaking to. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. There've been there've been some um, some high profile examples recently of of BBC presenters who've left and worked for other media, and, and those presenters have spoken about how they've sort of felt liberated that they can finally yeah. give their personal views. But it does it does strike me as I think very admirable that we we can have those who say no, I, I want to be impartial as a as a public service, and even though you might be tempted to perhaps give more away. I think I think there is something very helpful for society as a whole, actually, to have people who say, I'm going to just be a bit more careful and restrictive in order to be as fair as I possibly can. I think that's right. I mean, I did I did once break the rule very badly, and I got into trouble for it, which was um, after I had been on a reporting tour in Sarajevo during the siege in the early 1990s. It was a very traumatic experience, and I was so horrified by what I'd seen that I came out and I wrote um, a piece in the Telegraph, I think it was, arguing that it was the duty of Western nations, including Britain, to do something about this in military terms and stop it happening. Um, As it happens, the government actually agreed six months later and did exactly that. But at the time, it was a very controversial thing to say, and I shouldn't have done it, and I got uh, bawled out by my boss, and I got bawled out by several politicians. Um, the funny thing is that, that reflecting back, I'm I'm pleased that I still had the capacity to be really angry about something because I think that sense of passion is also important um, for journalists. Um, so I, I have, yeah, I have done, I have broken the rules once, but I wouldn't do that now. And I do think the the impartiality thing is, as you say, hugely important. Uh, And and you can't really do your job without it. It was a bit different then. I was a relatively young reporter. Um, I wasn't a kind of anchor figure. Um, But uh, yeah, thinking back, I do have this other odd odd thing in in the sense I'm quite pleased I was able to be angry enough about clear sort of injustice want to do something about it uh, but but i've now learned and i, I wouldn't do it yes. again and i think that also raises a really interesting point about us as human beings having emotions and actually i think often our audiences who listen to us they don't want a completely detached unemotional report necessarily and clearly you had an emotional reaction to seeing uh conflict and 
and that did something in you. And, and you know, do do we sometimes need to be a little bit less wooden as broadcasters and sh- and show show our emotions where clearly it's it's human beings and it is awful scenes and and you feel that that human urge to have to do something to stop it. Well, how could anyone not feel emotional about events in recent days in Israel and Gaza? I mean, you wouldn't be human if you didn't feel emotion in those circumstances. Um, that said, there is a, there is also a duty, I think, on on broadcasters to to, to control that emotion um, so that it's a kind of source of energy, if you like. Uh, and not to let it get in the way of your basic duty, which is to tell people what's happened. Um, and I think I have to say, I think some of our BBC people have been absolutely brilliant at finding that balance between showing their humanity and um, responding as humans to the really awful things they've seen, um, at the same time as remaining professional and transmitting information in a balanced and fair way and also framing it in in the context the political context that that you need to have in mind so it, that is that is a tricky balance to to maintain but i think it's possible um, and the best correspondents do it all the time now you've obviously interviewed many hundreds of people over the years and i imagine in putting together this book, you were able to revisit some of those conversations. But what are the most memorable people you've met or interviews you've done with with people who perhaps just stand out for really positive reasons that you felt you had a connection with or had something important to offer? Well, it's, it's people often ask me something along those lines. I'm just having a look at the book, actually. I mean, there are a few people. Desmond Tutu, you know, he always filled the room with joy and you came away from the interview feeling how how, how privileged it, it was to meet somebody so inspiring um and um sort of uh, clearly alive with the best of christianity and the best of the christian spirit um there've been other occasions i suppose when i've talk to people like that and then find i've been disappointed i mean i i have complicated feelings now about Cardinal Hume, who was the abbot at Amsworth when I was a boy there, and who I admired. You're a bit young to remember him, but he he was an extraordinarily powerful moral voice in in British society, and he had this kind of saintly aura. You, You felt you were in the presence of somebody who was comfortable talking to God, which is a very unusual quality. And I actually did... Uh, the last interview he did before he died, he died of cancer. Um, there was a, a, a firebomb attack on a gay pub in Soho, and Hume came onto the Today program, knowing that lots of people might want to ask him difficult questions about the Catholic Church's view of gay relationships, and was absolutely clear, very courageously, in condemning what had been done. And it was particularly moving because you, you could hear his voice, which was beginning to lose its power as the, the cancer was quite advanced by then. So I, I, you know, he was a bit of a hero of mine. Um, and yet when the child abuse inquiry into um, what happened at Amforth came out, it is apparent that he covered up for an abusing priest and sent them off to a parish and didn't report them to the police. Um, and that leaves you with a very sort of unsettled feeling. You know, what, what your hero has feet of 
clay. It's it's very difficult that, and I I find that very upsetting. Um, it's also true, and this is perhaps more uplifting, that very often some of the uh, most um, engaging and encouraging interviews are with ordinary people who've been through um, extraordinary events. And in the context, since we've talked a bit about the Middle East, I went and did a program on the anniversary of the foundation of the State of Israel, which, of course, by Palestinians is regarded as the Nakba, the disaster. And we talked to a group of mothers, uh, Palestinians from Gaza, um, Israeli mothers from southern Israel, where so much is happening at the moment, uh, all of whom had lost family members uh, because of the because of the, the conflict um, and had decided to form a kind of mutual support group and share what they'd been through with each other as a way of building links which you know transcended the divisions between the two societies um and that was you know that none of them are famous um, I don't think I can I mean they're, they're in the book but I can't remember their names um but they were so inspiring what's been the best day of your career? And what's been the worst? Best. <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. There's so many days. In a funny sort of way, um, I'm not sure that best and worst, as a journalist, really um, are the right terms to to use because the 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 joy of it, as I said earlier, the great privilege is being there where. Um, where history is being made, and quite often the history is bad stuff. I gave the example of, of Sarajevo, which I still look back on as one of the most intense experiences of my of my life and of my career. But it was dreadful. I mean, so it was best in the sense of of being a very intense experience, but worst, one of the worst in terms of what I was seeing. Uh, it's also if you've been around as long as. As I have, you find that that history can change your judgment about things. So, um, immediately after the uh, Taliban fell uh, after nine eleven, and, and and the Northern Alliance with American help moved into Kabul, um, I managed to get down to Kabul from Pakistan with a with a, with a group of journalists, and we broadcast the Today program live from our hotel bank balcony in Kabul with a sort of the cool winds of the Hindu Kush coming down and this great sense of liberation and excitement uh, about what it was going to mean, particularly for women. Uh, was this going to be a new Afghanistan? Um, which I would have said was one of the, you know, was definitely a high point of my career. But then 20 years later, I'm sitting doing the world at one in London and watching the whole thing fall apart as the British and the Americans and everyone else withdrew and the Taliban moved back in. So, um, so that turns it into one of the worst days. You know what I mean? It's quite difficult to talk about to talk about um, things being being good and bad in that way. Um, does that make sense? I'm slightly weaseling out of sort of only up to what was wonderful. And what it, was. Yes, it it. It, it it part it partially makes sense. I completely take the point that uh, you're right as as journalists. It's often the really awful moments in life that we're covering, and there is this strange conflict, isn't there? Because on the one hand, professionally, you feel this great sense of honour and privilege. You're there at the moment; history is mm. being made. And you know, frankly, if we're speaking really, really honestly, it's kind of good for your career, you know, to be at the be at the biggest news story of the day. 
But then, of course, on a human level, as you say, it could be tragedy or war or, or death. Yeah. And those things, of course, on a human level, you don't celebrate. I suppose my question, though, was was more personal for you. You know, have there been particularly great days in the office or bad days in oh. the office where per- personally for you, um, there's there's been high high points and low points? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, my worst day in the office has been fired from the Today programme. I, I, I'll be quite frank about that in public um, beforehand. And, and worse than that, hearing from it, hearing about it from a journalist and not from my not from my boss. Um, but there's a, a, a great quote from St. Augustine that I try and remember whenever I feel cross about that, which is that feeling resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. Which is always good for a quote, St. Augustine, and I, and I think that's true. So I don't dwell on it too much because I think it's um, it's corrosive to you know feel that you've been hard yes. done by uh, in, in that way. Yes, and it strikes absolutely to the heart of Christian faith to forgive. And and I was thinking of that when you you said the most inspirational people you've met are often the the normal yeah. people. Who, who have extraordinary things happen to them. And I'm sure you and I can both think of people we've interviewed who, you know, have had, have chosen often as, often as Christians or people of other faith have chosen to forgive in the most unimaginable of, of circumstances. But, but, you know, using that example of, of being, as you said, being fired from the today program, how do you forgive as a, as a Christian? Is that, is that a process? Is that, how would you explain that? Well, before I claim heroic powers of forgiveness, one thing that, was a mitigating factor was the enormous support I got um, from people complaining to the BBC about what was being done, and also actually from my um, wonderful children who started up a, a campaign Facebook group <laughs> to try and get my job back. So there were lots of you know when something like that happens in a very public way, a lot of people pile in. Um, if 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 you are if they are fond of support you and you know, in what's really a very heartwarming way. Um, but I think that, I mean, I don't quote that St. Augustine idea in a frivolous way. I think it's absolutely true that if you allow yourself to be consumed with anger and resentment, you will frankly have a miserable time. I, it may be, I mean, you know, naturally, I'm cheerful about life. Uh, I enjoy, I mean, I, I've, perhaps because I've been very privileged and things by and large have always turned out well for me. I, I kind of have an expectation of um, that things will continue to do so. And I, I certainly have forgotten it, but it, you just, you know, goodness me, if I, whatever, it's more than 10 years ago now, if I woke up every morning feeling really cross and hit the table, I'd be a miserable old sword, really, wouldn't I? But it's, <laughs> life's too short. I mean, there are cases. And one of the cases in the in the book is a, is a couple who's, uh, whose daughter was working for um, one of the Christian charities teaching in uh, what was then Rhodesia, and she was murdered by um, a group of guerrillas, and they're interviewed, and they sound amazingly and deeply Christian in their forgiveness, and that's a rather more difficult thing to do, uh, you know, forgiving the loss of a child, the killing of a child, and worrying too much about losing your job. Yes, it certainly puts things into perspective. What do you think the future holds for you? You've done a number of different positions at the BBC. Is that you sort of set set for life? You're a, you're a BBC man. Do you know have Do you have any particular aspirations to work on other shows or other projects that you're you're looking forward to doing in the future? I like writing, and I found that I spend more and more of my time doing books 
now. Um, my level of, of BBC work is actually quite appealing, really. I mean, I do the Sunday programme, not every Sunday, thank goodness. Um, and I, I, I'm doing The World at One tomorrow, which is a very enjoyable show. Um, I'm doing, at the moment, an analysis about the challenges facing the French political system at the moment. So I've actually got quite a nice spread of things. Uh, and it, it gives me space to think about books. Um, I've got another idea I'm kind of working up a bit, but they take a bit of time to... The gestation of, of a book is a bit like a gestation of an elephant. You know, it, it takes time and, it, and, it, and it, it can't be rushed. And I like having a little space in my life to do that. Um, so I think, I think I mean, I've, I've, had, I've had some very good sort of formal positions in broadcasting. I mean, I, you know, really enjoyed being Washington correspondent for Channel 4 News, diplomatic editor for ITN, Paris correspondent for the BBC, a newsreader for a long time, 10 years on the Today programme, the Sunday programme. Um, but I'm, I don't really, don't really care about the positions anymore. I just, I enjoy, I still enjoy doing it. Um, and, yeah, I'm quite happy like that. Uh, I, I don't. I'm, I think I'm probably too old to have vast ambitions. Um, so, yeah, business as usual, really. I keep chuntering on it for as long as people will read my books and you know listen to me on the air. I was uh, doing some reading about you a few moments ago, and you were described in one place as an expert on the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Do you feel <laughs> like you're an expert on the Roman Catholic Church? Well, I when I was a trainee in ITN back in nineteen, the early nineteen eighties, um, one of my first jobs was to write briefing notes on things like transubstantiation for the reporters and presenters in the run up to John Paul II's papal visit in nineteen eighty two. So I've kept a kind of sideline of Catholic uh, interest going over the years. Um, so I, and I, I don't, I'm not sure I call myself, call myself an expert, but I have a sort of, I don't know, a running, a run, reasonable running knowledge of it. And I, and I do keep, keep that up because obviously for Sunday, it's very important. Um, yes. and it's, it's fun because it means I get sent to do papal conclaves, which are really, really enjoyable. You know, lovely place, great lunches, huge drama, that wonderful setting in St. Peter's Square. Um, there's nothing like it, really. Well, I would, I would very much appreciate your take on on one of one of the issues, one of many issues facing the Catholic Church. And I suppose there's a specific question around Pope Francis and and one of the issues, which is same sex blessings. But I think there's a broader question here about the Pope because in recent weeks there has been this suggestion that Pope Francis is indicating the Catholic Church could move towards blessing same sex relationships. Yeah. But I, I do think there's a wider question there as well which is how we in we english speakers understand pope francis i've i've seen people argue before that some of the pope's comments can be lost in translation or even that he has more of a pastoral approach that doesn't always fit the categories of the kind of theologians if i could put it that way but could i get your view on that on first of all whether pope francis is likely to allow same sex couples to be blessed but also more widely how we should understand and interpret the pope's words and if he is being misunderstood by uh, some parts of the media perhaps well um, on the first point i don't honestly know um the only thing i would suggest is it's worth going back and looking at the way he's managed some of these big questions of reform 
And he's always been careful not to run ahead of the church. You know, he's always he's floated these ideas, but he hasn't gone through with them if he doesn't feel that he's got the support of, of the church as a whole. An example of that, I suppose, would be um, the summit on the Amazon. I don't know whether you remember this, but because there's very few priests in the Amazon, it was suggested that they might start to ordain married men to minister to Catholics in the Amazon region. Uh, and, of course, the, the suggestion following that was that once you've done it for one group of Catholic priests, you then introduce married ordination, uh, the ordination of married uh, men across the world. Now, there was a lot of, you know, tension about that in the run-up to the summit on the Amazon. And in the end, it didn't happen because the support for it wasn't there. And he does, when, when he, he sees that, he doesn't push things. I mean, similarly with women deacons, you probably remember there's two commissions have met to discuss the question whether women could be deacons edging into the field of, of you know, female ordination. Hasn't happened. So he, 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 you know, he, he introduces these, these, these ideas, but he doesn't force them through. Um, in terms of your broader question about the way we interpret him, there's that very um, striking phrase about a culture of encounter. The idea that you don't abandon church teaching, but that when you meet people uh, and you hear their stories, it changes the way you approach a question. And, and, and you know, you say, is he, is he a pastor? And I think that's part of being a pastor. Um, and, and, and I think that's the, the way to interpret what he, what he says. It, it doesn't mean we really know where it's going, but it gives you an indication of the kind of doors that he's nudging open, if you like. Mm. Um, and reforming something like the Catholic Church is not something any one man can do. And I think a lot of what he's done is preparing for a kind of long conversation about some of these questions and trying to detoxify them, if you like. Um, mm. So that's that's my interpretation uh, of the way to respond to what he says, yeah. which, which is, I mean, it's, we like to talk in political terms, don't we? Are you full or anti hanging? Or, you know, what do you make of HS2 or whatever it is? And I don't think you can fit him into his political categories. I think, I think he is a traditional Catholic in lots of ways, but because of his pastoral experience in Latin America, um, he, he allows himself to be influenced by his encounters, by the stories that he, the stories of real people. Uh, that he that he um, that he's heard, and that and that yes. informs his decision making process. Yes, and it strikes me that they are the most interesting people, the people you can't quite put in a neat category or or box, and who transcend some of these questions. I mean, dare I even mention in the same sentence that Jesus could be a bit like that, with yeah. uh, people trying to catch him out: are you this or are you that? And sort of trying, yeah. it seems at times, to walk this kind of middle way where he couldn't quite be pigeonholed. And I wonder if there's something of that not just in Pope Francis, but in the most interesting people that we meet, that they they can't be neatly categorised or boxed. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. And the great, I suppose, the great um, contrast is with his immediate predecessor, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, who I did actually 
meet and interview when he was the head of the um, the church's theological watchdog. And it, it, it's interesting because he, he, in complete contrast to his sort of public image, he was utterly charming, very gentle, very polite and warm. Um, but once we started doing the interview, you realize you were in the presence of a formidable intellect because every question came back, you know, six over the boundaries with interest and all that. Um, but he was quite, well, he clearly was quite um, rigid in his thinking. You know, he, he certainly honed on on certain areas of traditional Catholic belief and said, no change there, forget it. Uh, and Francis is, uh, although he, as, as I say, I think in some ways he's quite an old-fashioned Catholic, but he's obviously open to um, what hearing the voice of the church, of the people of God, I suppose, is one way of putting it. Absolutely. Well, Edwards, it's been fascinating to talk. I wish we had more time, but you do have to now dash off to something far more important than this uh, interview. Congratulations on uh, just becoming a grandfather uh, for the third time, I think. Just in Thank the, you very in the past much. Well, yeah. Sometimes it happens. It's always such a thrill. Well, please enjoy being with your family. And thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us here at Premier Christian Radio. It's been a pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you have enjoyed this interview, we would love it if you could give us a quick rating and a review wherever you're currently listening to this podcast from. It helps other people to discover the show and it will just take you two seconds. So a rating and a review would be amazing and we would massively appreciate it. That's it for now. We'll see you same time, same place next week for another great episode of The Profile coming up soon. Take care.